0: All right, again, John chapter 20, pick it up in verse 19 and read through uh, 31 and then flip over to 21. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, "'Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you.' And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, "'Receive ye the Holy Ghost, Whosoever's sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained.' But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now flip over to chapter 21, I'll read verses 24 and 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray Thee now that You would pour out Your Spirit upon us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to behold the truth of Christ, who He is and what He did and who He did it for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, This morning I wanted to just give a simple gospel message associated with what's set before us this morning. Um, Our deacon uh, quoted from uh, John where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And I appreciate it when I hear something like that because that's a verse I intend to use this morning. And so God has put it on his heart earlier in the week to share the same thing. Um, He did read for us this morning uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, I would draw your attention to the first couple of verses in uh, First uh, Corinthians chapter 2 there, because I want us to appreciate um, something in particular this morning, and that, of course, is that you can't see Christ, you can't understand anything about it without the witness of the Holy Ghost in your heart. You won't get it. And so he opens the, these verses here, and he basically says, hey, I didn't come to make a slick sales presentation. This, the fact that you believe is not incumbent upon me to make a particularly cogent argument, as though um, in the wisdom of man, in the uh, power of my argument, you might believe me, and therefore believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. People that do believe under those circumstances believe according to man's wisdom, which is fleeting. And so they walk away uh, believing for a time, uh, but it doesn't stay with them, because then they begin to think about this, and they go, well, this is really craziness. So in verse 14 of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says quite plainly, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So when we share spiritual truths with people, when we're witnessing to them, we have to appreciate that absent the Holy Spirit they simply cannot understand it. So in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord sets that very clearly because um, this the context of that has to do with the preaching of the gospel. All the time the Jews were wandering in the wilderness um, when they had left Egypt, he had taken them out of Egypt with many mighty signs and wonders. They crossed the Red Sea by... By virtue of a miracle, God had uh, parted it for them and destroyed all of Pharaoh's army. And then he fed them for 40 years and gave them water to drink for 40 years. And they still didn't get it. And so he says here in verse 2 of uh, Hebrews chapter 4, he says, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. In other words, all those people wandering through the wilderness, they all had the gospel preached to them. So it was preached unto us as well as it was unto them. But the word preached did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. So the gospel is preached. God has to give person faith to hear it so they will appreciate it and understand it. So that's what the Lord is setting for us before us, uh, before us in terms of truth. And so he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Hey, I didn't come here with um, um, excellency of speech. As a matter of fact, my speech was quite rude. So this is my fallback, because I know that my speech is not excellent either. So I go, that's a comment upon the Holy Ghost to take the things that I share with you and impress these truths upon your heart. So here we are in John chapter 20. And over the years, I have um, come to think of Thomas as doubting. As a matter of fact, I think that's where the term doubting Thomas comes from. It comes from Fort Thomas here, and people beat him up over the years because Of uh, the way things, uh, the way they think things play themselves out here. So in verse 24, we can appreciate that Thomas was not with them when Jesus came to the uh, room here. So Thomas misses a blessing um, that the rest of the group got because he didn't happen to go to church that day. I'm using that as, as a bit of a metaphor. Now, Jesus, being God, he's omniscient, and he knows that Thomas is present. It wasn't a coincidence that Jesus showed up and Thomas was not there. I mean, God knew that, and so he's setting this up before us so that we would appreciate proofs that, that come out of this. So he approves he's omniscient, which we already know. In Hebrews 4.13, it says that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We have to do with Christ. Everything is open unto him. He knows what is in our hearts. He knows what our thoughts are and he knows what the, our motivations are every time we do anything. Hebrews 4.13 says, there, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. So if you look at what takes place here, when um, Thomas comes to them, he says, hey, unless I see uh, the nail prints in his hands and his feet, unless I put my fingers in there, I'm just not going to believe so when Jesus comes in verse 27, he says, coincidentally, I'm using sarcasm, hey, put your finger in my hand here and flush your hand into my side. I know exactly what it is that you need, because even though I wasn't physically present when I appeared and you, um, and you were absent, and then when you showed up, um, I know what you need to see. So Thomas was there, was not there uh, when the Lord showed up, and so... He did miss a blessing of not seeing Jesus at that time, and he did not receive the Holy Ghost at that time. So he suffers another week of uncertainty, of of fear, of what's going on, what has happened to um, Jesus. So for him, it's another week of walking by sight and not walking by faith. It's another week of not knowing what the Lord's plan of redemption is. This truth has not been impressed on his heart. I mean, he, knows he should know what the scriptures say. He was with the disciples for the three and a half years, and Jesus explained to him everything, but he's no different than the rest of these guys. They didn't understand it. I mean, we um, read that in John twenty nineteen. 19. They knew not the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. They didn't understand it, even though they'd been sitting in the synagogue and listening to what the um, Rabbi would have to say they didn't understand it. So he's gone another week without understanding what good things the Lord has in store for his elect. And again our deacon read that from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says that I hath not um 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Come on. Oh, I'm sorry. I turned to 2 Corinthians. That's why I can't find it. As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. The world does not understand the glory that awaits the elect, the glory that awaits the saints. Thomas missed out another week of not understanding that. In verse 10, the Lord says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. And so Thomas, not having received the Spirit on that particular day, has got to wait another week before the Lord will impress these glorious truths upon his heart. So it's another week for him of not feeling the loving presence of the Lord in his heart, another week of not being united with God through the Spirit, as we read about in John 17, and another week of not being united with the saints through Christ, which again we read about in John chapter uh, 17. So there's a good admonition in the scriptures in Hebrews 10, 25, where it says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There's going to come a terrible day for the Jews here as you approach A.D. 70, where the Romans are going to come, and if these fellows aren't hanging out together, to use colloquial terms, they might miss the signs of the Romans coming, but if they get together, people in the group are going to go, hey, you know what? Remember when the Lord talked about when the eagles gather, we need to get out of Dodge? I think now's the time. Well, in like manner, the world is really kind of upside down, and I think when we come together, we can appreciate and share these truths about we're getting close to the end here. So in verse 26 of John chapter 20, Jesus appears the second time. The first time he appeared was in verse 19, and the scriptures tell us that the doors were shut. Now, that's an interesting little tidbit there. He says it both times here. And so we tend to think small things about God. We tend to think that, well, I guess Jesus, with a glorified body, he can walk through doors and walls and things as though he's just milling around Jerusalem and decided to pop in on the disciples, just kind of see how things were going there, which he can do as God. No doubt he has control over all things material and immaterial because he created everything. There's not an atom or an electron circulating an atom that he doesn't have control over. However, we mustn't think small things about God as though he's just walking in from the street to see how things are going. Keep in mind when you read the scriptures that there are two Jerusalems, very different from each other. There's an earthly Jerusalem and there's a heavenly Jerusalem. In Galatians 4, 25 and 26 speaks of the two Jerusalems. It tells us in the Bible that there are two Israels. There's an earthly Israel, a certain people that are physical descendants of Abraham and Jacob, and there's a heavenly Israel, which contains the spiritual, spiritual people. There are two different children of Abraham. There's those of the flesh, and there are those that are of the seed, the promise of the seed. So... I don't think Jesus just popped in from the earthly Jerusalem. I think he popped in from the heavenly Jerusalem. He came from glory. He came from the Father. So the spiritual truth set before us here that the doors are shut. Well, we should appreciate that Jesus doesn't need doors because Jesus is the door. And he says that he is the door. And that door is open to his people and only to his people. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he very plainly says, I am the door. By me, meaning my door, me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is the good shepherd. He leads the sheep in and out of the door, which is him. In other words, he gathers his sheep unto himself. They enter into him, and then he takes them to glory through himself. So, as our deacon quoted, John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one way, there's only one truth, and there's only one life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So he's the portal, he's the door that uh, that people go to to be um, in the presence of God the Father. Jesus also enters into that same door. He enters into the door of himself, to go to the Father. And Hebrews chapter 10 sets this out before us, but I'll just I'll explain it here. If you think of the way the temple was set up, the priest would first go into the holy uh, place where there was the altar of incense uh, before the veil, and then to his right is the table of showbread, and then the, uh, the lampstand on the left. In order for him to go into the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was upon which sat the mercy seat and the presence of God was said to be there, he had to go through the veil to get in there, which he could only go through with the blood of um, the offering. In Hebrews, the Bible tells us that Christ's flesh is that veil. So that's the way that the Lord went to enter into glory. And so in Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, it says, Having therefore, brethren... Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So it was through his death on the cross that Jesus entered into the holiest of holies, and that is the same vehicle by which we enter too. We enter in through the blood of Christ. So here we are in John 20. Thomas is present when Jesus makes his second visit, and the Lord again brings... Peace and in verse twenty seven we see that he gives Thomas exactly what he said he needed, and God does that for us all. He always gives us what we need, not always what we want, but what we need and so what follows after that in verse twenty nine is a bit of an um, enigmatic verse, and as though Tom got some Thomas got some special treatment as though he were different from all the other disciples, and hence we call him doubting Thomas. I mean, the disciples said, hey, we've seen him. Uh, Thomas doubts, or it doesn't really doubt. He just he does not believe them. He's rather clear about that. So I want us to take a little bit closer look with respect to the other disciples and see if we can draw some conclusions. But keep verse 20 in mind. What happened in verse 20 when the Lord came to them? He showed unto them his hands and his side. He did for them the same thing he did to Thomas. So let's talk about what happened before we got there. In John 20, and 19 and 20, we see that it tells us that the disciples see Jesus, and Tom Thomas doesn't believe, and so we call him Doubting Thomas, as though he's different than anybody else there. So what's the order of events? How did this play out after the resurrection of Christ? Well, who were the first ones to see the resurrected Savior? It was the women, as we've talked about in the past. So in Mark chapter 16, um, I'll pick it up in verse 9 of Mark chapter 16, it says, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, again that should be early the first of the Sabbath, appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him, as they mourned and wept. Now, there's a believing bunch of people. They're weeping and they're mourning because they think Jesus is forever dead. So Mary Magdalene, she's seen the risen Savior, and she's going to come and talk to them. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. Now, they've known Mary for a long time. They probably knew her before she had had the devils cast out of her, so they would have seen a dramatic change in her, so they don't believe her. Um, Now, over in Luke chapter 24... Let's look at verses 9 through 12. Again, this is on the, uh, the women are coming and sharing what they've heard. And um, in verse 9, in Luke chapter 24, this is being the women returned from the sepulchre and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. So they're spreading it beyond just the eleven. It was Mary Magdalene, And Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. They all know who these women are. It's not like these are people off the street they've never had a conversation with. For goodness sakes, they've all been walking with Christ for, again, a period of three and a half years, some of them a little bit less. And verse 11, and their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. The disciples aren't believing even though they're receiving first-hand witness testimony from the women. Then arose Peter, he's our icon of faith, right? And ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen cloth laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. He's wondering. Jesus had told him point-blank what was going to happen back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. So Peter is left wondering, well, why not believe what the women have told him? So, back in Mark chapter 16, verses uh, 12 through 13, we read, And after that, that is to say, after he appeared to the women, and they came and told, and they believed not, after that he appeared in another form unto two of them, as they walked and went into the country. That's how faithful these men are. They are leaving Jerusalem and going away. Verse 13, And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. So they don't believe the testimony of the women. Now he's appeared unto two of the disciples who then tell the rest of the disciples and they still don't believe him. So that's, you can flip over to Mark, excuse me, Luke chapter 24 and that's going to affirm the same thing over in verse 39 of Luke 24. Oh, and so there he is in Luke 24, verse 39. The Lord appears to them. And he says in verse 38, why are you troubled and why do your thoughts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. So this ties in with John chapter 20, 20. Jesus comes and says, hey, touch me, handle me. You know, two groups of people have already come and told you uh, that I'm alive, and yet you are still not believing. So the same thing happens with Thomas. And yet we segregate him as though he's somebody in particularly... um, uh, particularly doubtful, but that's not true. He's, what he has done for Thomas, he has done for every single one of the disciples to whom he came to see. So this is consistent with the nature of man. We have to see Jesus. And that's um, what I'm going to continue to share with us here. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it tells us that by grace are ye saved through faith. We have to have faith, through faith. And that is not of yourselves. What is not of yourselves? Faith. It is a gift of God. So God tells us very clearly here that he's the one who gives faith. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. He says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So what I want you to walk away with from that is that it is given... To you in the behalf of Christ that you would believe on him. Faith is a gift. God desires that you believe on him. Those that believe on him believe because God has given it to them. So you have to ask yourself what's going on with the disciples here. Don't they trust each other? They've been walking with each other for three and a half years. I know there's some interesting dynamics, but they didn't believe the women, and they didn't even believe each other when they gave their firsthand witness and testimony about who Christ was and that they had seen him. So, moving forward, what does this mean for you and me? What makes you think that when you go talk to somebody about Christ, they are going to believe you? <laughs> you think you're going to make a particularly cogent argument? Well, the Apostle Paul lays that for us in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 2. They're not going to believe me because that's not the way it works. They didn't believe each other because that's not the way it works, and they're not going to believe you because that's not the way it works. They will believe Christ if they see him and if they hear from him. So the answer is, no, they're not going to believe you, not without a revelation from God himself. It must come from him. Every one of these people literally had the risen Christ come to them. You see the same thing about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. When you look at God knocked him off his horse when he was on the road to Damascus, he appeared to him. Brighter than the noonday sun, the Lord tells us as you walk through it. He saw the Lord. The Lord came to him. And so what you have in here is you have the truth as it is taught to us in John chapter 3 when the Lord is talking to Nicodemus who came to him by night because why? He's walking in darkness. That's the natural state of man to walk in darkness. Nicodemus comes to him And he has some questions to Jesus. And he says, yeah, we know you're from God. He does not really know it. I mean, he's just articulating that. But we we know you're from God. Because no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. In verse 3, Jesus mentions the very profound truth. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God now, in the Greek there, it means born from above, born from the Spirit. But Nicodemus is going to ask the question. And so in context, we, 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 they interpret it, um, translate it, born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Remember what the entry point is? It's Christ. He's the door. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the door. You're blind. So, unless you're born again, you cannot see Christ. You cannot enter into the kingdom of hand of heaven. So, with respect to doubting Thomas here, once he perceives and sees who the Lord is, he makes one of the most profound statements anywhere in the scriptures, particularly one about Jesus himself. He looks at Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. The clearest statement anywhere that Jesus is God. Now, how did he get that information? Well, it was revealed to him by what? The Holy Ghost. So we know that he has received the Holy Ghost. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it says that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. So we know that he's received the Holy Ghost just like the other disciples had received the Holy Ghost. So everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, must have had that truth divinely impressed upon their hearts. So the profound statement that Thomas says, my Lord and my God, when he's talking about Jesus, we know that came from God himself. Now the next verse, uh, verse 29 of John chapter 20, we read, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. It's helpful if we look at the Greek there because the word seen appears twice in that verse, but it's two different Greek words. The first one, seen, is a Greek word which means with the eyes of perception. He has seen with the eyes of perception. How has he seen with the eyes of perception? Because he's received the Holy Ghost. The next word seen, they that have not seen and yet have believed, those people are blessed. That's without a doubt. That means you haven't seen him physically. No Christian today has seen him physically. No Christian that preceded the Gospels had seen him um, physically either. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, well, Abraham, there was a Christophany. So, um, in general, David. Isaiah, these people did not see Jesus standing in front of them. They certainly didn't see a resurrected Christ. It would have been before he was incarnate. So they believed, nevertheless, because God impressed the truth upon their hearts who he was. I mean, the Lord says that about Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, future tense, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham's looking forward to the cross. He knows what it means. He knows what it's going to do for him in terms of his regeneration, just like we look backwards. So we fall into the second category, and it is a truly a blessing for us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not having, not having seen him in the flesh. Um, so, again, we have to appreciate that it is by revelation that not only do the disciples believe with perception, that we believe also. Now, in John chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord talks about um, how he comes and gives them the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, the Lord is speaking to Nicodemus, and again, he's having trouble understanding things, even in the, um, um, in the worldly sense. The Lord is speaking about um, the wind as a metaphor uh, of the Holy Ghost, and actually the Greek word in there is spirit. It says in verse 8 of John chapter 3, the wind bloweth where it listeth. In other words, the wind goes where it wants to go. And thou hearest the sound thereof, But canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. And so here you are walking around the street, and you can hear the wind blowing. You're like, well, where's that coming, and where's it going? There's a specific place it's coming from with respect to the Holy Ghost, and a specific place it's going with respect to the Holy Ghost. And he says, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So he's talking about the Spirit having a personality. The Spirit is God, and it goes and illuminates the hearts and gives faith to whomever the Lord wants heaven it's all he's directing everything now we should appreciate that when the lord came into the world that nobody knew who he was i find that very interesting the world was made by him it says in john chapter 1 verses 10 through 13 he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not imagine yourself walking down the street and you see jesus he has created everything he spoke everything into existence you have no idea who he is. Isaiah 53 says about him that there was nothing in him that we, that we should desire him. He spoke everything into existence. He came unto his own, meaning he came unto national Israel. They had almost this much written about him and about what he was going to do, and they didn't receive him. But then in verse 12, it says, but as many as received him, and why would they receive him? Because he gave himself to certain people. If I were to give you a book, um, you would receive it because I'd leave it in your hands. So think of it that way. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. To become a son of God requires the power of God. To become a son of God, God has to give you that power. Even to them which believe on his name. Belief, faith is a gift. It's all a gift from God. Now, verse 13 is the one that folks don't like to read. Speaking about people being born in verse 13, he says, which were born not of blood. Meaning, if your parents are a Christian, that doesn't mean you're going to be a Christian. It's not a physical relationship, nor of the will of the flesh. There's nothing in our flesh that desires the things of God. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. It's quite the contrary. Nor is it of the will of man that we might be born again. There's, not, not, there's nothing in our intellect that when we read through this and go, yeah, that sounds like a good idea to me, I think I'll believe in Jesus because it's a ticket to glory. There's nothing in our will, there's nothing in our flesh that desires it, there's nothing uh, in a bloodline that would have us to believe. So anybody that has this notion that because they're physically related to Abraham, there's a particular blessing, completely contradicts us. That's not the way it happened. So he says, which were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. It's all um, related to God. And so I think we can understand that in a worldly sense because not a person in here decided to be born. I did not have a conversation with my parents back in 1956 saying, hey, why don't you two hook up? 1957, be a good year. That's when I'll be born and then we'll move forward from there. I had no say in the matter. Nobody had a say in the matter of whether or not they would be born again, born from above by God. God has to take our understanding and appreciation of who Christ is, and he's going to drive that truth right into your heart. And he says that in 2 Corinthians 4.6. 2 Corinthians 4.6, speaking of the creation, when God spoke light into the world, he said, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you know that jesus is god it's because god put that light right into your hearts you didn't figure it out came right from god then in verse 7 he says we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of god and not of us god has taken that truth put that light right into your heart and it is now in these earthen vessels so it is by revelation revelation only that we understand these things it doesn't matter how many books are written. The whole world can contain all the books. doesn't matter how many books. doesn't matter how many miracles that Jesus did. They didn't get it. They still won't get it. You can lay truth after truth after truth in front of people, and they won't understand it. 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. the Lord says, The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. And so the Lord did sign after sign after sign, miracle after miracle after miracle, after miracle to the Jews, and they didn't get it. And he told them that. He says, the Jews came um, in John chapter 10. I'm reading from 24 and 25. He says, then came the Jews round about and said unto him, how long doth us make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. He'd already told them plainly. And Jesus says, I told you and ye believe not. The works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. In other words, all these miracles I'm doing, they affirm that I'm the Christ. So... Jesus gave the Jews one sign after another. He turned water to wine, which requires rearranging the molecular structure. He cast out devils. He fed thousands of people. He walked on water. He quieted a storm with just a word. He said, be still, and the waves and the wind ceased their raging. He healed people with incurable diseases, gave sight to the blind. Most of them were provable Miracles, meaning these people were known by others as being infirm, they couldn't walk, they uh, had the palsy, they were blind. Everybody knew they were blind, you know, they were deaf. They, they, whatever the issues were, they were generally known by all of the people. And he did them in such a way as to help Im- impress that truth upon their hearts because he did it, a lot of it, on the Sabbath day, and they all blew their tops over it. <laughs> you can't do these miracles. Oh, what am I doing? You can't heal this man on the Sabbath day, so they were acknowledged out of their own mouth came an acknowledgement of what he was doing that it was in fact a miracle. he raised four people from the dead, very public one of them there was a whole funeral parade leaving the town. it was a widowed woman, it was her only beloved son, and he comes up and he touches the uh, the uh, casket, and the guy pops up out of the grave I mean like Talk about raining on somebody's parade! <laughs> You're going to have to turn the whole thing around. <laughs> it's just we're, we're gonna, i don't mean to laugh, but what? What? I mean, very public. Everybody knew it. He did. Uh, he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. You remember when he did that? And he went into the room and he said, "No, she's not dead. She's just asleep." They laughed him to scorn. Oh, of course she's dead. <laughs> You're out of your mind. They all knew she was dead. He raises her from the dead again, out of their own mouths. Lazarus, he raised from the dead. He was in the grave four days. Everybody knew he was dead. After he raised him from the dead, what did the high priests want to do? They wanted to murder Lazarus and put him back in the grave. They acknowledged that he'd been raised from the dead. <laughs> so everybody knew what he had done. Um, and then I know uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about all those bodies that came out of the grave after his resurrection in Matthew chapter 27. I mean, everybody, everything he had done, it was, it was known, these, these major miracles. You know, the first one you might think, well, this is just a parlor trick. You know, the guy really wasn't dead in the, uh, in the casket. Second time, well, oh, it's just a fluke. Third time, he's just getting lucky, raising people from the dead as though this is something anybody might be able to do. So, indeed, he gave the Jews lots of signs, but they don't believe because they're blinded. So... The Bible contains everything that God wants it to contain. He's given us everything that he wants us to appreciate about himself. He impresses the truths upon our hearts and requires the Holy Spirit to open up unto us the things that he has done. It tells us who he is. It tells us the things that he has done, the things that he is doing, and the things that he is going to do. It tells us about the plans for everything, about the plans for angels, the plans for men, the plans for the world to come, and so... Most importantly, it tells us all that is required for a person to get from here, this present evil world and their degenerate, uh, reprobate state, to a place of glory with a regenerated body. He says here, quote, The Holy Scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Bible is not going to save you. It tells you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Now, again, it doesn't matter how many books he's written. The whole world could fill it. Unless the Holy Spirit illuminates the truths to you, you won't understand it. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the nature of man, and then we'll, we'll finish up here. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, it sets before us, and this comes right out of the Old Testament. This isn't When you read the New Testament, you need to appreciate that everything here comes out of the Old Testament. It's not like the guy, God started writing a new book. He's talking about the eternal covenant, which goes all the way back, uh, well, to Genesis chapter 1. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 in, uh, through 12, he says, What then? Are we better than they? In other words, are the Jews better than the Greeks? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? No. He says, No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. We're all the same. We're all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written. Again, he's quoting from the Old Testament. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. Okay, this is not an intellectual thing. He's telling you, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. That's a very basic statement. Nobody seeks the true God. People develop in their own imaginations uh, an understanding of whom they think God is, And as one of our brethren is fond to say, the day that person dies, his God dies with them. And that's of a truth. This Bible speaks of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true and the living God. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So men don't understand. He says that here. They don't seek after God, and yet God seeks after certain men. God comes to them, just like he did to the disciples here. He came to them, and he came to every one of us that believe on him. Romans 8, 7 says the carnal mind is at enmity against God. That's man's natural disposition. It's in rebellion, and it hates God. Jesus had already taught that in, in the Gospel of John. Um, Job says, and I like this verse, that men drink iniquity like water. That's how much we love sin. We drink iniquity like water. That's Job fifteen six. Now, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6... Again, describing man, it says, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That's the nature of man. He's describing, really, he's describing the spiritual condition of man using um, uh, physical terms, uh, describing the, the flesh. But that's true about the way a man is spiritually. Now, so the question is, given the condition of man, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from our state to one where our sins are dealt with? Well, on a couple columns over, as we continue in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 and 20 are verses that we are well familiar with. In Isaiah 1, 18 through 19, the Lord says, and this is to be understood in a legal context, like you might hear an argument in a court of law, come now and let us reason together. Now, we've already been told that man does not understand, but nevertheless, the Lord will endeavor to reason with a man, and that proves that man doesn't understand. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, verse 19. If ye be willing and obedient... There's a conditional statement. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. Verse 20. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So on one hand, we have this, well, your sins will be cleansed, but there's a condition. You've got to be willing and obedient. How do you get there? Well, how did it work out for the Jews? Which, were they willing and obedient? Um, well, why don't you ask the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, or the Medi-Persians, or the Greeks, the Romans, the Nazis, or all the Muslim nations around them. They have been beat up for thousands of years. Why? Because they're not willing and obedient. To be willing to do something is a matter of the heart. You have to have a desire to do it. So it's willing and obedient. Not just obedient, because you can be beaten with a stick and be obedient, but that's not the same thing as being willing. You want your children to do things because they want to do them. They want to please you. They love you. So how does that happen, that a person is willing and obedient? That comes from God. In Philippians 2.13, he says, It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He makes you willing and doing of his pleasure. Good pleasure. God has to give you a new heart, a new heart that loves him and desires to please him, for only then will we be willfully obedient. Now, let's look at Ezekiel 36. Those are verses, again, that uh, these things are always on the tip of people's tongues, but I don't think they appreciate what they mean. They don't see conditional statements, and they don't apply them to the right people. Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to read several verses, and then I'm going to interject. I'm going to read from 24 through 28, but I'm going to be interjecting comments. Ezekiel 36. The Lord is saying here, for I will... This is something God's going to do. You and I aren't going to do this. He says, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Now, remember I said there's two Israels. There's the national Israel... And there's the spiritual Israel. Well, this applies to the spiritual Israel. The, that language comes out of Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, where he says uh, of them that God has taken people out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And they, he's been taking us up to glory. So when he's talking about gathering people from all of the nations, he's not talking about the physical Jews. He's talking about the spiritual Jews, those who have had their hearts circumcised by the Lord. So he will bring you into your own land. So just kind of, Put your finger on that word, own land. What land is would that be? What land are we going to get? Is that going to be that postage stamp place over in the Mideast? Um, verse 25, then will I, God's going to do this, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Verse 26, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. So he's going to take out this stony heart we have. That's the natural man who has a hard heart towards God. He's going to give you open-heart surgery. He's going to pull out the stony heart and put in a fleshy heart. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit. That's the new spirit he's going to give us. He's going to put the Holy Ghost in us. Just like he breathed it onto the disciples and Thomas, he's going to give it to us too. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. You're going to be willfully obedient. So your scarlet sins are going to be as white as snow. And your red sins, those sins that are red like crimson, they are going to be as wool. Because you're going to be willfully obedient. You will meet the conditional statements Of what we read earlier in Isaiah. And so this is exactly what the Lord has done in John chapter 20. He's given them the Holy Ghost. He's given them a new spirit. And metaphorically speaking, he's given them a new heart, a heart that believes in him and trusts in him and will obedient, be obedient unto him. And the book of Acts opens with, as soon as they receive the second dose, that would be for Peter and, and some of them get two doses. Man, they're obedient. They start running out and just start preaching the gospel left and right. They have no fear of the Jews. They go out there, they're cast into prison. And uh, they pop out again because the Lord releases them, and off they go and preach again. So the scripture tells us here that God has done it this way because all the glory belongs to him. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1 have some interesting verses there. It says, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Men don't get it. They don't understand it. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. In other words, this is all the work of God putting the truth in a person's heart. He continues in 1 Corinthians, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world, things that are despised, hath God chosen. The things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. And now he tells us why in verse 29. Why did he do it this way? That no flesh should glory in his presence. It's all of God. Nobody's going to stand before God in boast. Hey, I I figured this out. No, No, you didn't. Back in Ezekiel 36, now verse 28. He says, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is a wonderful promise of everything that he's going to do. You will be my people and I will be your um, God. So he says here, he's going to make it happen and they're going to receive the land. They're going to dwell in the land that he gave to your fathers. Now, the question is, what land did God give to the fathers? What land did he give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Again, you heard me use, uh, I said it in a a way to help you appreciate that. No, he's not going to give them that little postage stamp that's over in the Mideast. Your thinking is way too small. So what did God give Abraham? Back in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. I'll read that. And the Lord said unto Abraham, after that lot was separated from him, he's showing him the land. Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art. Northward and southward and eastward and westward. How far can you see? There are no dimensions. This is unconditional. I'm going to give it to you. Now, you're going to find some other borders given, but those are always conditional. This is unconditional. This is the promise to Abraham. If you're wondering what he meant, verse 15, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, And to thy seed forever. In other words, Christ is the seed that's promised here. As far as you can see, there are no dimensions. You can bet the visibility was good in those days. If there's any question about it, in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, God tells us this is what he promised Abraham. For the promises that he should be heir of the world, that's the Greek word is cosmos. You're getting it all was not to Abraham or received through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, the promise that he's going to receive the cosmos, going to receive everything that all the saints are going to receive, the new heaven and new earth, is through the righteousness of faith. It's not through the law. It's not because you're obedient in and of yourselves. It's only because it's a gift from God. So, in summarizing here, uh, the Jews require a sign, the Greeks, wisdom. What do you require? Well, get on your knees and pray for wisdom. Pray that God will reveal himself. To you. Um, No flesh is going to glory in his presence. So, again, what I want us to appreciate this morning is you and I are no different than any of the other disciples. Thomas is not any different from Peter or Cephas, you know. um, uh, John, James, none of them are any different. God did the same thing for us as he did for them. He did the same thing for Thomas that he did for the other disciples. We, we, we read about how the women witnessed. They didn't believe him. He revealed himself to a couple of disciples. The other ones didn't believe them. Then the group go to Thomas. He doesn't believe him. God has got to reveal it to us. God has to do um, for us For everyone, what he has said, he has to shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. And we indeed have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Amen. Amen.